In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage. While you enjoy your PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar recordings, remember that these were recorded online and some minor audio and connection issues are to be expected. This seminar is rated DID for Damn It Daigle. The seminar may contain Adam Daigle and therefore may contain inappropriate language. Hi, everybody! This is the Pathfinder Adventures uh, Seminar. It's going to be a panel conversation where we talk about some of the upcoming Pathfinder Adventures uh, that Paizo is going to be publishing. We'll also talk about some of the craft behind making and editing and producing uh, the adventures that we put out for the Pathfinder game. Uh, and uh, I've put together, or we put together, a great uh, panel to have that conversation. I should start off by saying, hello, I'm Eric Moda. I am the publisher and chief creative officer at Paizo. Uh, so I kind of manage the entire editorial operation. And uh, each of these folks uh, has a very critical role to play in that operation. And I'll give them an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves. And uh, Adam Daigle, I think we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Adam Daigle. I'm the Pathfinder Managing Developer. Um, I basically make sure that Pathfinder products keep going and all the badass people working on it have what they need. Awesome, awesome. All right, uh, Ron Lundeen, how about you? Oh, I'm Ron Lundeen. I am a Pathfinder Adventure Path developer, along with uh, uh, Patrick Rini, the, the other Patrick. Uh, we shepherd through the adventure paths of the uh, through the Pathfinder line. A lot of fun. Okay, cool. Uh, and uh, lastly, we have Patrick Hurley. Patrick, say hello. Hi, I'm Patrick Hurley. Uh, I'm an editor at Paizo, and um, I get to read over and check and correct all of these amazing things that the people on either all sides of me produce. Awesome, awesome. So uh, when we start talking about Pathfinder Adventures, and specifically most of our conversations today are going to be about Pathfinder 2nd Edition Adventures, we might as well start at the beginning. So if we could get the first slide up, that is uh, the Fall of Plaguestone. We had to think really long and hard about what kind of adventure we wanted to do for the sort of debut adventure for uh, the Pathfinder second edition rules. And one of the things that uh, we knew we were going to need to do was have the person who wrote it also understand what those rules are because it was being produced sort of concurrently to the production of the Pathfinder second edition game. Um, Adam, you were uh, pretty significantly involved in that whole project. Why don't you start us off by talking a little bit about Fall of Plagstone, what it is, why it is, how it came together, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, yeah. Like one of the things that was interesting with that is a lot of times we try to tie a lot of products into other products and launching an adventure on the same day that the core rules comes out seemed like a very important thing to do. If people like didn't want to jump immediately into an AP, we needed to provide something that was a shorter investment for, for people time-wise, um, which also was super challenging trying to develop it while the rules were still being solidified. And something Eric mentioned earlier, like one of the things that really helped was having Jason Bowman, who was like leading the addition change 
actually write the adventure. So I, there were times where I could trust that he got it right. And then times that I had to walk over to his office and be like, Hey, is this right? And then working with edit later on to make sure that a term that changed last minute also was, you know, fitting right in the adventure. Um, but we also wanted to have something that was a little more kind of like basic adventure where I'm not saying that like the story Jason put together was basic, but something that is what you would expect from an introductory fantasy adventure. And I think that we really nailed that with uh, Fall of Plague Stone. And even though Jason can be a brutal designer and make some very brutal encounters. Or perhaps because he can be a brutal uh, designer. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot as I'm sort of thinking about it again is, uh, you know, this is something James Jacobs and I have talked a lot about over the years. And Adam, I think we've pulled you in these conversations as well. And probably the, uh, everyone else has participated to some degree in them. But we have uh, this belief that like... Um, the way people remember and enjoy adventures is sort of like uh, akin to the title of a, of a friend's episode. You know, it's like, oh, this is the one where you blank, right? This is the the one where you go to hell, or this is the one where you fight against, you know, goblins or what have you. And I, uh, my memory says that the the kind of summary of Fall of Plagstone is this is the one where you become an adventuring group. You know, this Correct. is the introduction. This is what kind of binds you together and takes you forward. And I think Jason did a really nice job um, bringing that to fruition. And then once you guys got in and polished it all up is, is even better. So, and um, absolutely. Yes. And, and like, also, I mean, something else that the adventure did other than like providing people, you know, something to play with the brand new core rules is that it really integrated some of the, nice innovations of second edition where it had you know customized backgrounds so everyone playing a character could pick one of these backgrounds and like instantly be kind of integrated into things and showed the rarity system where hey you're playing this adventure you found this now it's not uncommon anymore it's something that is yours and so if you take that character further people know that hey oh you played fall of plague stone because you have this certain item or you have this certain you know right. ability or whatnot nice. well that's that's a very interesting point and it kind of brings me to ron uh you know ron you your main focus is the adventure path and and we'll you know at least on a day-to-day -day basis and we'll get to that you know later in the the thing but i wonder if we could kind of sneak you in here a little bit to talk about you know, backgrounds that Daggle mentioned. I mean, that's one of those new tools that second edition gives us to better root people into the story of the adventure. And that's certainly been the case in our standalone adventures, but I, I'd love to maybe hear the, the adventure path perspective. And maybe if there are other tools, uh, Daggle mentioned the rarity system, but there are other stuff that you're finding, wow, this really gives us an opportunity to kind of improve our adventures just because of the new innovations in second edition. Patrick, if you've got thoughts on that too, that'd be great. Ron, let's start with you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the thing that we had with the adventure paths back in first edition was when we come out with a player's guide, we'd include traits that were appropriate for the campaign. We'd have campaign traits. And that was always fun to do, but also it made me feel a little bit awkward because we were relying on a basic rules system that had come out in the advanced player's guide that wasn't part of the core rulebook. Now, because we have backgrounds right from the beginning as part of the core rulebook, then we incorporate those directly into the player's guide to give you things that are going to mesh 
start of the adventure path. Not necessarily all the way through. They're backgrounds for a reason. They're where you were before you got to the main part of the adventure. And one of the things that I want to keep in mind is that there could be people going through the core rulebook who see a background listed there and think that, yes, man, I want to be a barrister. That is my whole character background. <laughs> and even if there are campaign options, they need to work alongside of and not instead of the other options that we've given. But all the way through the adventures, all, all six of the adventure paths or three, as we announced yesterday, sometimes you've got additional training that you can get in the form of feats or archetypes or items that you can find, uh, more magic, spells, and the like, we pretty frequently evaluate those and determine that they ought to be uncommon or rare because you've found them in this one adventure. They don't need to be uh, widely available to everybody at every campaign because this is the one that you got because you defeated the evil circus. It is therefore rare because you're the ones that have found it and that makes it a real special thing i feel like people that come out of the end of any of the adventure paths you could play the same character at the beginning but by the time you get at the end of an adventure path all of the tools you have are going to be very different based on all of the uncommon and rare things that you've found you'll be able to look at somebody's 20th level and go i i don't even need to hear a word about this character i know what they did i can see it in the the stuff they've got Totally. Uh, Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that one from the editorial uh, perspective? Just, just about tools and things that we've added in paths. And... Yeah, just, uh, just you know, um, I'm not put, trying to put you on the spot, but just oh, if no. there's anything about, you know, second edition that, that in an adventure uh, framework you're, you're kind of finding compelling. Um. I think one of the, well, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been at Paizo for a, f a few months, but, you know, I got to work on uh, the uh, advanced player's guide. And one of the things uh, I've just been so impressed with the second edition is the uh, customizability of characters. You can combine archetypes with classes and backgrounds and just create like an amazing, like it's a, it's a, it's a variety of characters I've not seen before. So. Okay, cool. Um, let's go to the next slide, which is a, the unadulterated cover uh, for the Plague Stone, Fall of Plague Stone. Um, and the, the illustration here is by Sataiwan Lee uh, and does great job, really like. Uh, we've got Ezrin and Amiri there fighting off against some some wolves. Uh, that 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 wolf encounter, uh, oh boy! You know uh, the interesting thing about Plague Stone is it's a it's a first level adventure. It's the first adventure for our uh, new game, but it's not necessarily going to hold you by the hand with a bunch of like training wheels on. There's some tough fights in that thing. Dago, what were you thinking when you were looking at some of those classic Bullman sort of death maneuvers when you were was... uh, developing this thing? No, there were a number of times where I'm like. Uh, this severe three at this point that is this is this right jason has this like changed since the last time i looked at the rules um yeah no there were a number of them just like well this is and yeah they seemed really difficult and i was constantly balancing the idea of like where which is something that you run into when uh developing adventures and writing adventures period is you want to provide enough of a challenge but you don't want to punish people. And so you've got to, it's like a super fine line of like not providing people with a cakewalk, but also not just 
killing a first level character in the fourth encounter because that sucks yeah <laughs> well and it's interesting too because i think you know one of the things i think a lot about about pathfinder not just in second edition but kind of all the way through is that it's uh it's it, it's not just sort of theater of the mind it's not just hey you know let's make up a fun story to get there is a game there and there's tactics and there's if you take undue risks you're gonna sometimes suffer the consequences and i think you know having some of that built in right from the start is is a good way to go um okay cool anything else you guys want to say about um fall of plague Snow? okay then let's move on we can go to the next slide uh, this is the Dead God's Hand. This was meant to be the second standalone adventure for Pathfinder, but the uh, the writer is notoriously unreliable. Uh, I say that because it's me. Uh, so this thing is uh, this is delayed right now. We're looking at it coming out early next year at this point. Really, what's happened is uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what's happened and then I'll go into it a little bit more detail of what the adventure itself is. Um, I got sort of sidelined. Uh, I made a mistake uh, after um, 15 some years in this business. I still can make some mistakes now and again. And one of them was when we put together the outline for that big Absalom hardcover book, uh, we looked at sort of the size of it, put it together, got it back. Very, very good book, but not, quite what i really thought it could be so we put it further into development that's taken up a lot of my personal time and it's eaten into my ability to finish this adventure this thing's sitting at about seventy thousand of eighty thousand words right now um like i said absalom we're hoping to be out by the end of the year this thing will come right on its heels um but what dead god's hand is is it's sort of a campaign arc adventure it goes from first to about seventh level and it is a dungeon crawl, essentially. Uh, it's uh, the players start uh, imprisoned under about a mile under the city of Absalom in the uh, the Darklands by a dour Duergar clan. Uh, they have to fight their way free of captivity. They are allowed an opportunity to do that when their guards are distracted. The PCs are one of three teams that are tunneling their way and one of three different directions from this old Duergar compound. Clearly the leader of the Duergar is searching for something. And one night after the player characters come back to their cell, one of the other groups does not. And that throws the guards into a little bit of a, a worry. And they, a bunch of them go, uh, presumably to the end of that tunnel head where the group has tunneled through and found the thing that the, the Duergar have been looking for. That gives the players the opportunity for the first third of the adventure to fight against their captors, get their equipment, um, kind of become a group, uh, figure out a little bit of what's going on. And what they learn is that, and this is a minor spoilers, but what they learn is that the Duergar at the behest of an unknown agent on the surface in Absalom uh, has been searching for something called the Vault of Aridin, which is a completely sealed underground vacuum, uh, not vacuum, but an underground space when the Isle of Cortos was raised up. Uh, and the Church of Aridin in ancient days built a sanctuary in there that had a one-way or two-way teleportation thing between the Aridan church and the dungeon, or rather not a dungeon at that point, the sanctuary. And uh, when Aridan died, that sanctuary became completely sealed and had become kind of this lost dungeon underneath the city of Absalom. And so the player characters eventually, because they can't get out of the front door of the Durgar prison, go into this a hundred year abandoned uh, temple, essentially uh, sanctuary sanctum of Aridin. 
while there. They have to deal with uh, the missing uh, prisoners. They have to deal with the remnants of the Durgar, and they have to deal with the various threats and creatures that have come to inhabit the Sanctum over the years, including a whole bunch of Knights of the Aeon Star, which is the, the sacred uh, knightly order of Aridin, who don't know their god is dead, who don't know that they've been trapped there for 100 years, who don't really even know if they're alive. And that's something the players get to find out together. Finally, the third part of the adventure, the part I'm still working on, is the, uh, the what's called the Test of Aridin, which is a ritual that the players, uh, sorry, that the, uh, the designees of Aridin's faith would go through. And this is a mimicry sort of of the Test of the Starstone. And by doing this test, they actually live out certain uh, moments from Aridin's mortal life. And uh, it, back in the day, it was an attempt to kind of instruct the uh, these uh, warriors in Aridin's true past. Um, now it will, of course, be the player characters kind of going through the motions and doing that. We're going to learn a lot about Aridin. We're going to learn a lot about the final days of the Empire of Aslant. The final big fight encounter literally takes place in the throne room of Aslant on the day of Earthfall. It's very titanic and crazy. Uh, I've been working on this adventure for almost 10 years at this point in time in one fr uh, way or another. It started really as just like, hey, I go to a lot of conventions. I play with a lot of people. It'd be cool to have just an event in my back pocket. I could just kind of run on the fly. So I've run this thing probably about a dozen times with the uh, various groups, including two different groups at Paizo. Um, and, uh, and we've had a lot of fun with it. And now, uh, or rather for the last year or so, I've been translating my raw notes and note cards and stuff uh, to written form. Now, the good news uh, for me um, is that I audio recorded every single session of this game that I ever played. So it's been really interesting going back and listening and, oh, what did James Jacobs ask about this room? What did Jason Bowman say about this? And then kind of, you, know, you always try and think of like, what did your players do? But by playtesting this thing a bunch of times, I think I've covered a lot of the bases. So it's exhausting. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. I really, really want to be finished, but it's going to be awesome when it's done. So uh, let's uh, go to the next slide and you can see what that cover looks like. Uh, with no trade dress. Um, and that cover is by Hugh Pinder. So I really love this cover. You know, this, I, I really wanted to have kind of a cool, uh, you know, it's called the Dead God's Hand. So I wanted to have a hint of a, of a Dead God's Hand kind of reaching out. Is it because Aridin's coming alive? Is it because he's a zombie now? Well, I guess we'll find out together, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, Dago, you read some early drafts of this thing, I think. Do you have anything you want to say about this? Or um, I made it through... Um, yeah, I made it through your first chapter as far as develop-wise, so that was pretty much the hey, let's get out of a Duergar prison part and it was like... Yeah. And I could, I could see where the threads were going and it was just like, okay. Also, that intro is a little long and I'm going to have to trim it, but... No, it's beautiful. Every word uh, <laughs> has been carefully considered. We can't move at all. Okay, cool. So that is the Dead God's Hand. Uh, we all eagerly await that arrival. Let's go to the next slide. And here's an adventure that actually is coming out in the very near future. And that is Ron Lundin's The Slithering. Uh, the cover here, the, the attribution is not right. It is actually by Satyawan Lee as well. Um, and Ron, why don't you give us a little run through on The Slithering? Sure, sure. This is this is in many ways very different than what we've done before in the adventures. Uh, as Eric mentioned, this is intended to be the third uh, third standalone adventure that we put out. It's ending up becoming the second. But whereas the Fall of Plaguestone and Dead God's Hand start out novice characters, we did 
the slithering starts you out higher level. Slithering requires you start at about fifth level. It doesn't require it. You want to throw first level characters at it. They just won't last very long. Um, but it's designed for fifth level characters. Uh, we'll get you up to about ninth level by the end of it. Like the Fall of Plague Stone, uh, 64 page soft cover. Uh, one of the things I'm most exciting about that is very different about the slithering is the players and the setting. Uh, this is set in the city of Kibwe, which is in the Mwangi Expanse. It's uh, fun for me to be able to do an exploration of a part of the world we haven't done a real deep dive into before. But there is a real deep dive into Kibwe here, a gazetteer with all of the different uh, uh, crazy things going on in Kibwe. All the fun you can have is to have a setting and the adventure itself takes place. It starts there and it also ends there. Um, the characters themselves in this, one of the things that is most interesting about this to me is that overall, the slithering is a curse that is afflicting humans. And so one of the conceits right out of the gate for the slithering is that none of your players can be humans. Otherwise, they'd be subject to the curse. This is a story about how non-humans stepped up in order to prevent a real serious a real serious disaster and so there are guidelines in there about making sure people are playing non-human characters can you play you be a human ancestry with maybe a different heritage that's going to be up to the gm but the idea is you've got all the fun that comes with the advanced players guide you can really put to the test here you can have your your tangus and your kobolds and your cat folk and all kinds of all kinds of fun stuff like that the the story itself, as I said, starts in Kibwe just with a bang as the slithering is starting to affect people in a marketplace. And because they've stepped up in order to help out, the heroes are almost immediately tasked to do the what they can to try to put a stop to it. And then sort of chasing down what needs to be done to put a stop to the slithering uh, we'll take them out of the city of Kibwe into a very dangerous site we've talked about a little bit before, the, the holy city of Zatramba, which is not at all holy. It is quite the opposite, in fact. <laughs> and then uh, circle back to Kibwe to find out that there is a uh, an old nemesis that has shown up in several of our different stories that I'm not going to spoil now that has stepped in to try to make things worse. Uh, and putting a stop to them and a stop to the curse is a... Uh, is the what success in this uh, this adventure is going to look like. Um, one of the things that that I feel we we had to address on this, and that you know Patrick can maybe speak to a little bit about this. Um, I think it tells a a rip roaring story that when I turned it in last October, I did not think twice about this story about a contagious curse that is sweeping through the area, and that has become just a little bit too real. Uh, in the the current days, and we've 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 I worked closely with the editors, and I know Adam worked with this to uh, make sure that this isn't the sort of story that is going to be uh, um, as as real as it may have been um, when it was turned in. Uh, to make sure this is squarely in the realm of fun fantasy type adventure. Yeah, uh, Patrick, did you want to jump in on that? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, I I think uh, having worked on on this, this was one of the first things I got to work on after I joined, and it it is it was so much fun. Um, 
but you know we talked about the context in which it was getting released and we just realized that this is still a good adventure and we could show how people band together in times of crisis to overcome challenges and uh I mean, it was just a pleasure to work with the developers and with Ron and, and Adam just to kind of tweak the adventure and make it something that I think everyone will really enjoy. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's real like rip roaring, you know, I mean, there's a lot of investigations, there's lots of following clues. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, like, you don't have a lot of time to just sit and wallow and think about, oh, wow think about the parallels you know and i think we did some good changes and stuff at the last minute to make that the case but you know hopefully people will enjoy it in the spirit in which it's intended which is hey look at all these people are turning into goo let's make that stop daggle did you have any thoughts um i was just gonna say that yeah something that we uh haven't yet publicly announced about the slithering is that initially whenever it was outlined since we were intending people to play non-human characters and this is kind of a tie-in to the apg because they come out around the same time um i in in my initial pagination i included four pages to show pregens of certain characters that people if they didn't already have a non-human character they could just pull it out and it was like using things like cat folk and stuff like that that were appearing in the APG. Um, but the adventure ended up running long and I didn't want to kill bits of the adventure. And I knew that I could still repurpose these pregens. So we're going to be around the time of the adventure's release, we're going to be launching out um, a little web PDF of those pregens. Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Some yeah. of that stuff in the APG for those new ancestries is like super cool. And then not very long after that, we've got the ancestry guide coming out for the Lost Omens, right. book, which is going to have <laughs> even more cool options for people to play non-humans in this book. I, you know, it's interesting when you when we talk a little bit about these these adventures because they're standalones, they really are a lot or they can be, I guess is a better way of saying it, a lot more flexible in terms of how they plug into the overall plan. You know, you've got an adventure path and the fifth volume of an adventure path has got a link directly to the fourth and it's got a link to the sixth, you know? And so there's a lot of dependencies on some of these other products. And sometimes we have done uh, standalone adventures that play to that strength. Oh, we were putting out a setting book in this area and here's a, an adventure that's kind of set in that area. But I would say more often, we use it as a way to pivot. So, you know, we knew that we wanted to get, for example, to the Mwangi Expanse relatively quickly in second edition. Um, we knew that the an adventure, you know, we knew what our adventure paths were going to be for the first couple of years, didn't have any room there. So when we're talking to Ron, we're talking to others, you know, what about what about the modules? Maybe that's a good opportunity for us to jump around. So I would uh, anticipate seeing more of that kind of thing uh, in the adventure line in releases to come is opportunities for us just to kind of dip our toe in the water somewhere. Maybe it doesn't need a full source book. Maybe it's not tied to 12 different accessories or a uh, season long arc and organized play or something. Maybe it's just a fun standalone adventure in a place that we either haven't been to or haven't been to in quite some time. And I think the slithering is a great example of that type of adventure, even though there are some subtle hit uh, hooks to the advanced players guide in terms of the opportunities players have for characters. And I, and to, uh, to build on, 
well to build on that yeah, like I, I think our adventures um which you know we've had troubles with in the past like trying to get enough resources to get them done and stuff like that and yeah. have them be super regular but one of those things i think they do really well is they fit that sweet spot between scenarios and ap's like people who want to do more than just a one shot but don't want to commit a year to two years to complete this other campaign can have you know like a four to seven session adventure and i'm glad that we're being able to provide that totally totally um okay cool so our next adventure that we want to talk about we do not have a cover yet but we do have an interior illustration so if we go to the next slide let's take a look at oh ooh, this is the town of otari Daggle, why don't you tell us a little bit about Otari? What is Otari? And what is Troubles in Otari? Well, Otari is a small town on the southern coast of the Isle of Cortos. Um, it first features, I guess, actually, technically in the Game Mastery Guide, because it's one of the sample city stat blocks. Um, but it shows up. And it's up... got a, a spot on the map in the Lost Omens World Guide, I think. Correct. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it does. It does. It does. Um, so, but one of the things that the um, beginner box, the adventure that happens there is in Otari. And so um, and I can't remember the name right now, but it's probably good that I don't spoil it. But um, what you got there? Thunder. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm just checking the map. Don't worry. So, yeah. So the beginner box takes a character from first level to second level. And then Troubles in Otari is an anthology of adventures that will bring characters from second through fourth. Beginner Box only provides rules for one through three, and then we'll have rules and Troubles of Otari, or Troubles from Otari, uh, <laughs> to bring Double. a character up to fourth level. Um, and the three different, like, felt it was strong to not have one continuous storyline and have it be kind of like pick up as you may type thing. So you don't have to play the third level adventure to have played the the second level or whatnot, but there are threads throughout all of those. Um, and each of the adventures shows like a different type of it, like a, uh, an archetype of adventures. Like the first one is the, hey, let's go reclaim a place and use it as our stronghold the second one is like hey gms who are new to this this is how to play or this is how to run a sandbox adventure and the third one is like this is what a dungeon crawl is like with puzzles and stuff like that um and for each of those the first one was liz liddell second was ron lundine and third was jason keely of course jason keely was the one that put puzzles in um <laughs> but also this serves as a bridge between the beginner box rules and the core rules because as if anyone watched the um panel the other day the beginner box is not a complete rework of the pathfinder second edition system it's basically the exact same system with fewer options so the way that this adventure was put together was super easy to develop because it's like oh yeah develop a pathfinder adventure and then pay attention to the small subset of things that are not included in the beginner box so people running it with beginner box rules can run it easily people running it with core rules can run it easily and things are pretty seamless 
but also it ties into the first volume or it ties into the abomination vaults ap which is also based in otari so we've got beginner box that's january triple, uh, 2021 correct yeah so yeah sorry no yeah great uh so ron i heard your name invoked there uh you wrote one of these sections you want to talk a little bit about that I sure do. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing the 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 second part of three, which is the third level adventure, which is really a sandbox, because this follows up from the beginner box. We're expecting even and characters of any experience can play it and have a really good time, but we are expecting there will be at least some people coming into it who are coming right out of the beginner box, and it was really sort of fun to be able to start the chapter by saying, "Hey, you know, look, sometimes what you do next isn't in." isn't a specifically clear. Sometimes you could just go, just go explore. And, tr- you know, there's all sorts of clues you may have and trouble you may have. And a sandbox adventure being built around the characters following up on leads they want and doing what they feel like. I Frankly, I think it's a really important part of adventure telling. It's a really important part of the role-playing process. And so it's sort of fun to be maybe people's first experience with, wait, I could do whatever I want with it. That's awesome. So that was a lot of fun. Nice. Nice. So in some ways, Otari is kind of the, almost the sand point of second edition, if you will, uh, in that it's kind of the built in, this is the player's starting town. It's in the beginner box. It's in troubles in Otari adventure. And it's, it's the main site of the abomination vaults, abomination vaults. If you weren't participating in one of the other panels, three volume adventure path starts January, 2021, first level so you'll kind of come familiar with the setting through the beginner box through troubles at otari and if you want to start fresh you know it'll be like kind of putting on a comfortable shoe at that point in time for you if you've been through all that stuff um patrick did you work on uh troubles in otari well uh i've actually just before this was working on the beginner box atari so i've become quite oh <laughs> Why don't you why don't you tell us a couple of uh, interesting facts about Otari or a couple of things that just struck out uh, with you is like oh that's pretty interesting. Well, you know, uh one of the, Adam what Adam said was right it's Pathfinder 2 but like for people who've just getting started in second edition the language is 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 very good to build up to that. Um you know, for such a small town there are a lot of hidden nooks and crannies. Um <laughs> And uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, surprises. And um, I also, you know, uh, one of the first adventure paths I worked on was um, uh, the the circus. Uh, uh, Extinction oh, Curse. Extinction, Extinction Curse. Curse. Thank you. And I love uh, uh, Cord- the island of Cordos. So finding out about a new small town on Cordos that's kind of like this ideal it's like being in hobbiton and then you get to walk out to the rest of middle earth it's a lovely starting point uh with some challenging but not jason bowman level challenging encounters (laughs) (laughs) you know it's uh well two things that strike me one is there's another way in which otari is very similar to sandpoint and that's that our creative director james jacobs has got a heavy hand in it and i think that's where a lot of those mysteries james can't design something without cramming four adventure hooks into it thank goodness you know so uh so that's that's really exciting and uh you know again james is going to put his knowledge uh of growing up in a 
coastal town uh, in to play professionally. So that's cool. Um, the uh, the other thing that I was going to mention about Otari is it's it, you know it's interesting because as we were I'm going to pull us back a little bit to the very beginning of second edition when we were looking at the Lost Omens uh, world guide and what we were going to do and who was going to do what and all that. Um, having been one of the handful of folks who basically created Galarian. Um, but have not had my hands on every piece of it since by any stretch of the imagination, you know, you look at some places and you go, um, you know, do I, I might've invented this country, but there's been an adventure path set there since then there's been a source book. I, I'm no longer kind of the, the expert at that. So you start looking as a, as a writer and designer and saying, you know, what space is there to kind of add new stuff? 10, 15 years into the life of a, of a campaign setting. And one of the things that I thought was particularly a huge opportunity for us was the Isle of Cortos, that whole island area where Absalom is. It's the main city in our, in our world. It's right smack dab in the center of our setting. And it's miles and miles across. It's a huge, huge island. And yet, you know, if you look at sort of our whole first edition thing, I think we always wanted to come back to it, really get into it. So we were, were leery of like putting down too many markers, but it was outside of the town of Diabel, the town of Eskadar and Absalom. It, it was blank. There was like nothing there. So that was one of my tasks with the world guide was trying to kind of create the sense of there there in the Isle of Cortos. And that's where we started calling it the Starstone Isle. We started tying it in to lots of other fun stuff, adding places for elves and dwarves and, and, and you know, more terrains and all that. And Ron uh, really developed the heck out of that um, in uh, the Extinction Curse Adventure Path in particular. And if we could go to the next slide, uh, this I'd like to transition us a little bit into talking a little bit about the role of development and editing. And, and so, Patrick, we're going to come back to you in just a second. But Ron, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, both specifically kind of, okay, so now you've gotten the four, six pages about the Isle of Cortos or whatever from the World Guide. And, and it's like, hey, Ron, hope you can swim because design six adventures based on this. You know, like, ha talk to us about that process, about filling in the blanks and about kind of, and then if you could sort of dovetail into, all right, so you've got your plan, you've got your manuscripts. What does a developer do exactly with an adventure? Sure. I know yeah, those are two questions, but. No, that's fine. That's that. I love this. One of the things that is real <laughs> fun with this is when we were looking at, well, let me, let me also say it was even slightly harder than you described there because it was, hey, Ron, here's an adventure path that is going to explore the Isle of Cortos, about which we've said virtually nothing, except we've said a lot about the city of Absalom and your adventure path shouldn't go there, right? Because we, right. we've got this whole other adventure path <laughs> that we know is going to be right. very, very focused on Absalom. So you, you get to be outside of that. And that, that was great. Um, we had a lot of sort of in the office internal notes about what was around on the, uh, the, the Starstone Isles, Isle of Cortos, uh, and the Isle that uh, Escadar's on. And we wanted to make sure that we had sort of touched in a lot of the different types of places that are around there. And there were so many places where we could investigate sort of how the common people around the island live. You know, the the fishers, the farmers, the, uh, you know, nature priests on their little grottos against the sea. And being everything focused around 
travel through that uh, let us really show off a lot of the regions that are there through the Extinction Curse Adventure Path, where everybody is part of a traveling circus. Uh, I think a lot of people really latched on to circus as being a real fun part of that. But I, I'd point out that the traveling part of that is also really fun, too, because there's a whole lot of regions about this island that we'll be able to go see. Setting up the initial path of where people were going to go, sort of what towns they were going to hit. And just a couple sentence description, which is more than we'd published about what some of these towns were, uh, in an outline that went to the authors was was great. But even better was having the freelancers that we picked come back and having instilled so much flavor into the into the region. Right? We talked a little bit about the town of Willowside, and it's sort of cut off and real insular people and rumors of cults of the old gods that are there and what are these people like? And then Kate Baker came back with Siege of the Dinosaurs and had so <laughs> thoroughly fleshed out not just what this community was like, but what it was like under attack of an invasion of Zolgaths mounted on dinosaurs. It was just seeing all that ramped up was just so much more fun. And I got that throughout all of the adventures. Um, we did hit very solidly the theme of Arid. And we've got the, the picture of the statue up here. But as the guy that really raised the entire island up from nothing and his role in turning that from a, a rocky island, maybe with only some sea slime on it to being an exceptionally fertile and productive place where humans could thrive was, was not entirely benevolently done. And there are repercussions now, even hundred years after Aridans died about what that means. I think we were able to sort of play in a lot of the adventures of Extinction Curse with the legacy that Aridan left behind and what various people want to do with that. And that, that was a lot of fun to weave into this as well. And then when I got everything back that had touched on all those, making the connections to each other is really part of a developer's job. I, I, I often say that as a developer, we we take things one step better, right? If we get a, if we get a decent turnover, we can make it good. We get a good turnover, we can make it great. Um, and I was really lucky to have gotten so much good work from the authors of Extinction Curse to really make something that shines and see all around the Isle of Cortos and the, the, uh, uh, all the, the, both of the Starson Isles. It was great. Yeah, I mean, it's just an absolute treat to basically, you know, it's it, you, you come up with like a paragraph and then you hand it to the next person. And now all of a sudden it becomes a, a, a three pages and then it goes to the next person. Now it's a whole chapter, you know, it, you, to, to watch this stuff grow from just the nubbins of an idea and then have other people who were never participating in that initial idea come in and bring their own stuff. To, that's how this that's how a shared world grows. That's how the world seems so diverse and interesting is by having multiple voices participating in it. And the developer to me is kind of the one who makes all those little connections and, and is kind of the wizard of Oz behind the whole thing, you know? So um, yeah. So fantastic. Uh, Patrick, how about an editor? What now everyone knows an editor. Okay. What well, are the words spelled right? You know, but well, there's more to it than that. Why don't you talk a little bit about that specifically as it relates to adventures? Sure. Um, uh, well, you know, like there's a lot of different types of editing. There's uh, the, the, what everyone thinks of the catching of errors and typos and that's copy editing. And we obviously do that as best we can, but we're also editing for style. Um, we're trying to make sure that the tone of some of flavor text and description is appropriate 
um, and matches the type of story that we're wanting to tell. And usually we get such good work from devs, the developers that like, it's not really, it's more of a light hand. Sometimes it's copy fitting text to make sure uh, it fits into a given space. Uh, sometimes it's just making sure that a rule mechanic works. Um, so it's a bit of technical editing too. Um, sometimes it's fact checking or, you know, uh, making sure that uh, uh, this bit of lore fits or there's nothing that's been published previously that um, contradicts the, the new lore that we're introducing. Um, I could uh, use this example here of sometimes when we have to make judgment calls on this piece of art. This is one of the uh, statues of Eridan. Uh, that the players will encounter in this extinction curse. Um, now, sometimes with art, you know, we we see something and we're like, well, that's that's a mistake. We'll have to go back to the artists. Like if, for example, an elf's eyes look like human eyes instead of being the monocolored eyes of the uh, Galarian elves, we would have art change that. But in this case, uh, this statue was described in the text we received as the Aridin in his rogue aspect and the text originally came in as Aridin is wearing a hooded cloak with a dagger in one hand and he is reaching to steal something else and and you know we're like okay so that's not quite what's happening here but instead of going back to the artist let's amend the text to say you know Aridin is wearing a cloak and leather armor and he's holding something and his hand is cocked jauntily at his hip as if he's just succeeded at a heist uh so it's things like that just making sure that all the pieces fit together uh working with the designers and developers um and just kind of uh being fact checkers and uh sort of all of a sudden feeling like you could uh walk through the starstone isles and know the names of the towns <laughs> okay cool uh let's see here adam you have anything to add about the role of a developer um, been doing it no, I mean, um, I don't, I, I think y'all represented it well, like you talking about the, okay. you know, being behind the scenes, pulling strings type stuff. But I mean, like, I guess for people who don't necessarily understand what developers do, it's more or less kind of like a director, like, you know, we're the ones that come up with the original idea, find people to enact that idea, and then fine tune that idea later on as the short and sweet of it. Great. All right, now let's shift over to a slightly different topic. Ron, you put together a series of graphs to illustrate uh, our next point. So if we go to the next slide, Ron, I'd like you to kind of take it away. And uh, here is... Uh, nope, that one before that. Is not that I can already tell that Param's got the wrong version of the file. So uh, why don't we do this uh, differently? Oh, okay, he's going to fix that. So we'll just fill time, as they say. Um, all right, so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, boop, 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 scenarios in general. So we've got adventure paths, which are kind of the large format. We have modules, which are the smaller format. And then we uh, that, that might take several sessions. And then we have um, uh, scenarios, which are much shorter. Um, and if we're still struggling with the graphs, I think, Ron, you can probably summarize the, yep. the point yep. here. Um, so why don't we just get started and, and Param can join us uh, if he's got it. Oh, there it is. Oh, there we Hooray. go. Yeah, this is, Ron, this is something ahead. I've... <laughs> thank you. This is something I put together, and I don't want to 
scare anybody if they said that uh, when Eric said, "Oh, Ron's got a you know series of of charts." I have just this one. Yes, a series uh, of charts and graphs. <laughs> my my, I only let so much of my uh, corporate counsel background come through, but I I did squeeze in one <laughs> chart, and I did it on purpose because I think that anybody who's listening to us talk about the Pathfinder adventures and the great exciting Pathfinder adventures we've got coming up might be able to look and say, hey, you know what? We can go to the store and we can buy precisely one of these. So you've got a whole panel about one thing. Well, no, 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 no. We've got, we do have one of the Pathfinder adventures out right now, Fall of Plaguestone. But if you are looking for adventure, even this minute, we have got so much stuff that Paizo has produced for you uh, at a lot of different scales. Uh, we've got one of the Pathfinder adventures that are actually currently out. Uh, we have got, 10 Pathfinder Society quests. Those are uh, very short, sort of, uh, you know, one hour sort of things to try to get together and play. Uh, we, we have a lot of people get together to play those at game stores very quickly to show off our game and the things that our game can do. Uh, we currently have available 11 different Pathfinder Adventure Path volumes, the entirety of the Age of Ashes Adventure Path, uh, and then five of the six Extinction Curse volumes are out right now. Uh, and then we've got the Pathfinder Society scenarios themselves, an evening worth of play, and there's 22 of those available for second edition as we speak. So there is an awful lot of adventures, a lot of fun storytelling that that we're able to do. And I think being able to tell a lot of different stories of a lot of different lengths, a lot of different mediums is a real strength of, a, a, frankly, is a real strength of the role-playing hobby generally, but a strength of what Paizo does specifically with Pathfinder. Okay, cool. Uh, Daggle, you have any thoughts on scenarios and how they fit into the big picture? I think one of the things that <clears throat> I, I see this talked about, you know, like on social media and on threads on our message boards where people are just like, oh, I just wanted like something quick to play. And someone will be like, oh, hey, try one of these scenarios. And it's like, oh, well, I don't do organized play. And the thing is, is like, it doesn't matter it's still an adventure it's still a fun time like one of the things that i used to use um before i moved from texas to seattle to work at paizo is my regular game group if somebody wouldn't wasn't able to show up we didn't want to like just hold off the campaign so we would just be like hey instead do you want to just do this one night thing and they're just like, oh, we don't have a society number. It's like it doesn't care. We're still playing the game. Like, do you right. want to have a, do you want to have adventure? Okay, here, let's do this tonight. You know, and I think that's right. a really strong role that scenarios can play, and um, I think that's where it they fit in really well to our whole um, adventure ecology that we provide. And I wish more people realized that and understood that. And also joining org play and, you know, continuing to play a character like that is totally fine too, but right. people need to get over that hurdle. I think there's a whole universe of like friendships and experiences that you can have. If you want to jump in with both feet into the Pathfinder society or the Starfinder society campaigns. And a lot of you know, thousands of people enjoy doing that, but there's always going to be people who are like, I just kind of want to play with my five buddies who I've played with since I was a kid or whatever. And that scenarios still have a place in that, in that ecosystem as well. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, just to bring it back to Absalom for a second, uh, that book is, is the, the development that that book is undergoing right now is to make it 
easier to run sort of an, uh, an ad libbed kind of uh, player agency type campaign. Oh, we want to go do this. Oh, what, who's the head shopkeeper? What's his deal? Who, you know, so on and so forth to help you run the game, but having a stack of these city adventures kind of off to the side that you can kind of pull up, you know, when the players decide to, to go into the slum corridor or they want to, you know, hobnob with nobles and stuff. We have multiple scenarios that fit those niches. And with just a little bit of like quick name filing, um, or maybe not even because the Pathfinder Society, after all, is based in the city of Absalom. You've got a whole pile of adventures that you can that you can rely on. And a lot of times, just like when you swap a couple of details about a monster and all of a sudden they think they're fighting a, a giant flogibus, but it's really just an elephant nosed owlbear and they don't know any better. Uh, they aren't necessarily going to understand how the the components that you're building into your sandbox adventure, where they come from. They're just going to think you're a genius. So it's an easy way to kind of get some of that prep work done for you. Yep. All right, cool. Well, I see that we're at about three o'clock. Uh, we, uh, we've got some stuff to kind of put it all together at the very end, but I think now would probably be a pretty good time to start opening things up for questions from the audience. So I am looking at the chat and I will be pulling a couple of questions for our illustrious panelists to uh, take a, a swing at. And we've got about another 30 minutes uh, set aside uh, for this panel. So let's get some questions and um, let's see. Oh, here's a good question. Uh, Starfinder Adventure Line. What about Starfinder Adventures? Now, everything that we just said about the Starfinder, uh, or sorry, everything we just said about the Pathfinder Society still applies to the Starfinder Society as well. In fact, uh, outside of the Adventure Paths right now, Starfinder Society scenarios are are your best bet uh for quick standalone adventures that are not connected to an entire adventure path but that being said you know daggle did point out earlier that these pathfinder adventures fill a different niche you've got the very kind of quick maybe one two shot adventure in the form of a scenario and then you've got the full multi usually honestly multi-month commitment of a of an adventure path um, and right now there's really nothing in that center uh vessel if you will for starfinder and i suspect that the people saying hey what about starfinder modules are thinking about that exact thing and uh I've been thinking a lot about that thing too, and uh, it, it it I don't have any specifics to announce because we are still finalizing the 2021 product schedule. But um, I will say, people who are looking forward to the idea of some standalone Starfinder adventures, we're gonna we're gonna give them some things to talk about in 2021. And that's all I want to say. Uh, I probably shouldn't have even said that. Uh, if you want to read that as me confirming a standalone Starfinder module, maybe more than that in 2021, feel free to do that. I didn't say it explicitly, but if you make that connection, I'm okay. All right, let's get another quick question. Uh, let's see. Let's get one that is not for me. Uh, okay, Official Paizo, what is the design process, uh, thought process in creating adventure-specific feats with very niche uses. Oh, this is this is the one that was asked rudely and has been re rewritten. So that's good. Uh, well, let's let's even rewrite that a little bit more. Uh, we have little rules elements that come in to these adventures, particularly in the adventure toolbox at the end of the standalone modules uh, in, in the uh, adventure pass as well. Um, 
how, and this is a question for Ron and for Patrick, I think, and Dago, feel free to chime in as well. But what's the thought process? Because there is, of course, a, a danger that if you tie them too close to the adventure, if you make the, the ability all about, oh, you can react to this, this person turning into a goo in the city of Kibway, and you're always going to be awesome at that, what happens when the adventure moves? I, I'd love you guys to talk a little bit about the benefits, even the treasure, to some degree, that comes out of... Uh, of these adventures how do you make sure that they have a life that lasts beyond the adventure in question oh i've got actually two two quick points on that first i think that Great. they are not specifically for people who have necessarily had something done to them and they've got an effect that they sort of have to have but a lot of these are choices that the characters can make to more fully embrace the themes of the adventure or the story, right? Is that if you pick up the juggler archetype in Extinction Curse, that that's communicating to your GM, I love this circus stuff so much. I'm going to take some of my choices and I'm going to commit. I'm going to lean in to being part of this circus so much so that I'm taking the archetype for this. And what we want to make sure is that's not a bad choice to take down the line, that we want to make sure that it's reasonable, it's balanced. There might be some things that some situations in which juggling in front of the enemy is not a great idea, right? But we want to make sure there are some. With the adventure path line, we work far more closely with the design team in second edition than we did in first edition. And I think one of the things that really does is it makes us take a close look with our by ourselves and then with our design counterparts on is this a thing that is going to seem like a loss if people take it in the long run or is it something that's going to be comparable within the scope of the theme of this adventure path and we absolutely want to make sure we're providing options that are the 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 latter rather than the former um so i think that allows us to first of all give things that lean into a theme and secondly, do so in a way that is uh, in very intentionally and intelligently balanced within the rules. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to combine a couple of questions here because I think they're pretty much uh, asking the same thing. And one of them is, um, any new standalone adventure announcements aside from Trouble in Atari and the delay with Dead God's Hand? Um, and then the second question is, what are your goals for release schedule for standalone adventures? Um, and I think I can address both of those things. Uh, we always have to look at uh, when we're announcing various things. It's a it's a complex sort of math uh, problem. Uh, part of that has to do with what has been approved from the very top of the company in terms of solidifying the schedule. We're, I'd say, 98% of the way there on the 2021 schedule at this point. We're already thinking about 2022 and beyond, um, but we never want to announce something that then is going to shift its release dates and what have you. So where we're at right now with 2021 is our project managers are taking a look at the approved product schedule and kind of sniff testing. Can we put all this stuff out when we say we're going to put all out balancing all the editorial load and the art team and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to announce something that then we have to come back and go, oh, you know, actually that's not happening or, oh, that's going to happen later. Uh, we've already done that a little bit in this this panel as it is. So um, we, uh, I, we don't uh, plan to announce any additional adventures uh, in this panel right now. Now, that being said, 
we've got uh, some uh, stuff coming up for Origins uh, in uh, next month. We've got Gen Con coming the month after that. So we're going to be announcing a lot of stuff kind of in a fairly regular clip. If this were the standard sort of um, convention year, we'd, we'd plan sort of uh, announcements at all of those things. And so I would expect an announcement of an upcoming adventure uh, very, very soon. Uh, certainly for Pathfinder. I think there's going to be a Pathfinder 1 announced uh, relatively shortly. Um, and uh, the plan is to have at least three standalone uh, Pathfinder adventures a year. Um, and that's printed standalone stuff. We also are looking at maybe doing some other formats and things like that. That I'll let that kind of get its own moment uh, to shine. But we are looking at at least three adventures uh, every year. We've got plans for that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that's correct, right, Daggle? Yeah, I, I, I'll, Yay! I'll, I'll spoil more if you let me. <laughs> uh, uh, let me look at the schedule really quick and make sure that we should. Because uh, <laughs> there, there is one that's right on the cusp that uh, one, we don't really yeah. have. The March one or spring one? Yeah, the spring one. If you want to talk about the spring one, what the hell? Go ahead. Uh, it's just a very Pizocon! minor spoiler. It's Pizocon! Woo! Yeah, no, minor spoiler. Um, the spring printed um, adventure is going to be written by James Jacobs, and it's going to be freaking awesome because it's essentially the first half of our, or the first portion of our in-office game that we have now brought online since we cannot be in the office anymore. And it's going to be awesome. That's it. All right, so we're doing... And and so there'll be much more details to follow, but yes, there is a, 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 a sizable Pathfinder standalone adventure that's going to be announced in the next couple of months, and James Jacobs, our creative director, will be writing it. So, do, um, do you like haunted? Heard it here first. Oh, and it's in a haunted house. It's a haunted yes. house. James Jacobs adventure. So that's going to be amazing. I am super stoked uh, for that. Um, and okay, so let's look at a couple of other questions. Any plans for modules set in one of the other continents? Ron, I think I'm going to throw that one to you. And I'm using the widest definition of module possible Already. for answering this question <laughs> and why I'm sending yeah, it to we, your way. <laughs> yeah, we have... Uh... We have a lot of interest in exploring what else our our world has to offer sort of adventure-wise. Um, one of the things that when we get a lot of these questions about, are you going to set something here? Are you going to set something there? Uh, it, it's interesting to me because when people look at our adventures, they think we want a story in this place or that place. But really what we go with is what sort of themes do we want to tell? What sort of What sort of stories do we want to give? And then we'll fit those to the part of the world that support that story. And so it's not just can we have something that is set in Starusan or something in in Kazmaron or whatever. It's like, all right, well, if we wanted to have a uh, a, a story about sort of wide, long distance exploration over mostly untrammeled land, hmm, you know, Yobaria is a great place for that. Maybe that's the place we're going to set that sort of story. So as the sorts of stories we want to tell naturally fit into other continents and other parts of our world, absolutely, we are going to use those. Okay, cool. Um, uh, one of the things that definitely fits into this category is the uh, second uh, 2021 Adventure Path, which we have announced, which is Fists of the Ruby Phoenix 
which is a uh, return to the Ruby Phoenix tournament, which was a standalone adventure we published 10 years ago. And because the conceit in that adventure was every 10 years, uh, there's this big international fighting tournament with the greatest uh, fighters you know, across the world gathering. Uh, it's now been 10 years. There's a correlation of Galarian years to Earth years. So now is the time for us to return in world to the Ruby Phoenix tournament. And in doing that, we are definitely going to be going to different parts of the world. I don't want to get too much into where exactly that is, and it is going to jump around a little bit in and of itself. But folks who are excited about the Dragon Empires area, folks who are excited about Tian Sha, uh, this is going to be a good opportunity for us to uh, to check that out. Um, and you know, actually, it's not an adventure, but Ron, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, I think, in a chat with you during the regular work week, but um, boy, there's an article about Vudra in an upcoming adventure path that is just crackerjack of an article. Very, very good. It's not an adventure, but people who are looking up, uh, looking forward to learning more about sort of the India analog part of uh, the world of Lost Omens um, are really going to have a lot to sink their teeth into, into that article. And that kind of speaks a little bit to what I was talking about about an hour ago with, we start, you know, with the Isle of Cortos and it's just, you know, it's, it's a paragraph and it's this big. And then a little bit lighter we go and now it's this big. And then a little bit lighter, now we've got a whole adventure path there. Sometimes with these uh, off the map areas, it's really important to kind of establish the beginning of what the idea is before we go super deep into the idea. Dagle, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in vis-a-vis -vis Arcadia, which is something I know you've put a lot of effort into. Uh, while you were explaining that whole thing, that's exactly what I was thinking about. It was like, that's kind of how we went with Arcadia. Like, it was yeah. a paragraph in the first uh, campaign setting, and then I, you know, turn things into an, you know, a chapter in a 64 page soft cover. And then Luis, another Arcadia enthusiast, um, you know, put an entire adventure set there with like a whole gazetteer of a new region that we haven't even talked about. And I, I don't think a week goes by without uh, Luis going, so, um, should should we go ahead and start outlining an Arcadia book? And I was just like, in time, man, in time. But <laughs> if if any if anyone's going to get that done, it's going to be a, a team effort with at least Luis and I at the helm. <laughs> yeah, and though I mean, I'll I'll say right out, we don't currently have a plan for a Vudra based adventure or an adventure path as of right now, but the presence of that article and the thinking that Ron and uh, the author, Ron, who was the author on that? I believe that was Saif Ansari. Yeah, Saif Ansari did a fantastic job. And so, you know, just that nubbin of an idea is where all this stuff could grow from. And the presence of, of a little, even just a snippet makes the possibility of an adventure set in that location significantly greater. And so when we get into, for example, some of the Tian Sha stuff with Fist of the Ruby Phoenix, we'll be building on, you know, the 64 page book James Jacobs wrote several years ago. We'll be building on some other lore that we've put there. We'll be building on Hao Jin, who is a character who's heavily involved with some of the Pathfinder Society storylines with the Hao Jin's tapestry, which was again tied into the Ruby Phoenix tournament 10 years ago in Pathfinder Society. So it all just kind of keeps building on itself. All right, let's see here. 
A couple of other questions. Rapid fire. I'll let anyone uh, on the panel feel free to jump in. Uh, I see some people. I know we did the evil adventure path a while back. Some folks wanted to know, do we have any plans to revisit non-heroic adventurer types uh, in upcoming adventures? Anyone want to jump on that? Anyone want to just say no? I mean, there's the non-heroic option in APG as a for a character, but one, that's good. That's good. One, one. Of, one of the things that's sort of really a strength in the stories we tell is that you don't necessarily need to be a party of paladins to enjoy the story as we present it. Right? There are a lot of our APs where you can kind of be a group of jerks, and you still got to stop the evil thing that's about to happen or uh, fight with your. I don't. I don't think we need to be specifically limiting good or even neutral heroes in the stories that we tell because many of our stories often include with very little change uh, opportunities for folks who want to be uh, want to be evil so i think we kind of already do that in a way that is uh, more successful i think than people think okay good good and, um, and for myself yeah uh, and for myself i don't talk about alignment and polite company <laughs> <laughs> Some lessons we've learned the hard way. Uh, okay, let's see here. Bloop, 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 bloop. Uh, what about the Red Mantis? Anybody got any plans for Red Mantis stuff coming up? I don't personally, but I'm pretty sure James would love to do something Red Mantis. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the Red Mantis is uh, is is sort of plotting their next move at this point. There's there, we I, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of a specific tie-in where we're really going to go deep on them in the in the immediate near future, but they are definitely one of the power player groups in the world of Lost Omens, and I and we are not done with them by a long shot. So I would I would uh, keep hope alive in the Red Mantis land. Um, they will be slaying in the future, although uh, in the next six months your your contract is probably not going to get fulfilled if they've got a, a hit out <laughs> on you so um let's see what else here can we get a weeby shuni adventure that's kind of an interesting <laughs> idea I, i'm not sure if the shunies are quite at that goblin skittermander level yet um <laughs> But uh, yes, we've got, uh, incidentally, uh, our free RPG day this year is July 25th. It's going to be happening. Uh, a lot of uh, it's going to be very different this year, obviously, because of the circumstances. So a lot of it's going to probably be curbside at stores and what have you. Um, but uh, we do have a, a Pathfinder adventure coming out there. That is, Dagle, you want to talk about that guy a little bit? Has that actually been announced? And is that something we can talk about? Oh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's a surprise on the day. Well, come on by <laughs> on uh, July 25th, and we'll have more information about uh, that. Uh, Free RPG Day is an opportunity. You know, the initial questioner cited Weeby Goblins, which started as a Free RPG Day adventure. Those Free RPG Day adventures are shorter. Uh, they're 16 pages. Usually they're really meant to be kind of a one-shot for sure. Um, and it does give us an opportunity to do stuff that's a little bit off kilter a little bit completely different from the other stuff we're doing so uh definitely um now that being said there are some traditions people really have come to appreciate playing their goblins and their skittermanders so i tune in I soon and i think there's back. two i think there's two things i can say that won't okay violate any rules um Great. one it's not goblins 
because I'm sure people were curious of, oh, is this going to be another Goblins? It's not Goblins. Um, second, it was written by Eleanor, and it's fucking fun. Oop. Nice. And with that uh, F-bomb, you know that it's truly Sorry. more than normal fun. No, no, that's good. Uh, okay, so it's a, it's a it's free country here in the Paizo chat. All right, yeah, let's but I'm bad with no direction here. in that, and I apologize to them more than anything. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, let's see. Can we expect the return of any currently missing iconic characters in first edition in future adventures? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't iconic, know that the iconic characters like, aren't really cool. NPCs. Right. Ron, was that you trying to talk there? Yeah, that was me trying to say, is it is it the Iconics as in our Silas and Sionis and, and the iconic adventurers, or is it kind of big name people like we're showcasing in uh, you know Lost Omens Legends and things like that? Well, I mean, one of those is a lot easier for us to answer than the other, because just candidly, um, although we love our iconic characters and we they have stories and things, and we've told a lot of those stories through, you know, audio dramas and through comics and things within the context of the game books that we publish, the iconic characters really are stand-ins, you know, for you and for your characters. And so we don't really think of them as much as characters that you're likely to interact with or encounter in the adventures. And so that's that type of thing is relatively rare. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of even a single example of where we've done it. Now, that said, um, Lost Omens Legends, uh, the, the Lost Omens panel this morning was great. If you didn't get a chance to, to listen live, I would check out an archive of that because they have a lot of really interesting things things to say about some of the key NPCs in our world. And of course, we have seen many of them. You know, we've got the um, we've got uh, the Whispering Tyrant played a huge role in the sort of transition in world between the first edition era and the second, if you will. Um, the they, they showed off some art of Iando Klein, who was the original um, sort of uh, host, if you will, of the of the, the Pathfinder Society uh, sections in the fiction in the first 18 uh, Pathfinder Adventure Path volumes, and he is kind of coming back into the fold of the Pathfinder Society. So you'll see her, him again. You'll see Sheila Hydemark again. You'll see a lot of these NPCs who, particularly through Pathfinder Society, where we've touched on them a lot. But again, How Jin from the Ruby Phoenix tournament, we'll see that. Uh, we, I, 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 it's way too early to get into this, but. Um, uh, you know, uh, we have been talking about sort of the next adventure path after Ruby Phoenix, who's potentially the big bad there. That's potentially a familiar name. So we're always thinking of of known people, known NPCs that have uh, resonated with the players and look for opportunities to bring those folks back into the mix. But as far as the um, pre-generated characters, I would say, or sorry, well, the iconic characters, I would say pretty unlikely that their fates will be revealed in the form of a, an adventure module. All right, uh, let's see here. Someone asked about the spring 2031 adventure path. I'm not that foolish. Uh, let's see here. Um, somebody gives uh, loves uh, Diego's write-up of a Mexico-ish area of Arcadia. Awesome, yep, Diego's been doing some writing for us. We're excited, he's from our customer service team. You know, uh, just, I'm not sure why it made me think of this, but the idea of non-heroic adventures. Um, I know this is a 
Pathfinder panel. But I did want to bring up in the Starfinder line, we are about to launch something called Fly Free or Die, where very specifically, you're not villains, but the idea is you're kind of mercenaries and, and you're probably a little bit out for yourself, kind of the scoundrel adventure path, if you will. So if you're if you're as excited about hefting a blaster and a jetpack as you are a sword and a backpack, uh, you might check out the Fly Free or Die adventure path. I think it launches in uh, either October or November of this year and uh, that uh is gonna scratch that itch i think for sure yeah it's it's first All adventure right. literally called we're no heroes <laughs> that's right exactly exactly all right let's see some other questions are there going to be more flip mats or flip map tiles in adventures like how they are used in society scenarios ron daggle either you guys have something to add on that I, I actually this is this is an answer. I, I had that question when I very first started, and and I think the answer is is really interesting. Uh, there is a real value in consistency through our adventures and our adventure paths to how the maps look and what they feel like, and that is a visual way of communicating a feel of the adventure that I hadn't really even noticed. It had gone under my radar as a as a user of the Paizo products. But there is something when you take a, a flip matter flip tiles and you include those alongside a bunch of other custom made maps, sometimes it, it can actually look really jarring. The styles can be very different. And it is important to us throughout to make sure we've got kind of a consistent look as well as a consistent feel of the words. And, and I found that to be a real compelling, compelling reason why we're always looking for what's something that's custom for the adventure that's going to be exactly right rather than trying to pull in something that's maybe close. Well, and one... with that, um, yeah, go ahead, Dagle. I've got one thing to add to that is that um, yeah. <clears throat> while that doesn't occur in adventure paths, um, people who have been paying attention to our adventure line and some of our accessories might have noticed that follow plague stone came with a flip mat that worked with it. Um, might have noticed that the slithering also has a flip mat that works with it. Um, and as far as I'm sure, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that's something we plan to do to go forward yeah. with for every print adventure that we have. Absolutely. Uh, Dead God's Hand's going to have a multi-pack because it's a longer adventure. That'll probably be true if we do other long adventures in the future. But it's pretty much built into the plan now where every standalone Pathfinder adventure has an associated flip mat that goes with it. And, uh, you know, like Ron was saying, it does give us the opportunity to have a variety of styles and things because most adventures have more than one sort of or more than two fight locations in them. But it does give us that opportunity to kind of really think about, you know, what is the the you know, showpiece battle, you know, what are the battles where the terrain is going to really come into play and where positioning is super important. And as a designer, sometimes I find that that um, kind of breaks me, you know, into a mode of really trying to think differently about the, about the encounter. You know, if you're just like, oh, there's a room and there's a demon in it and there's a chest, you know, that's, I don't want to say it's lazy, but, 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 then adding the element of like, what, how does this room look? How, you know, where are places that p the players can hide from the scorching ray or where, you know, where, where, what, where's the chest specifically and how does the tactics come into play? So I find that to be a pretty interesting challenge as a, um, as an adventure writer it was tough in the Emerald Spire super dungeon where every single level had to be on a uh, map 
that was of the same dimensions. But even that, I think, uncorked a different kind of creativity. You know, sometimes being hemmed in a little bit is actually extremely useful. Having a deadline, having a word count. Without those two things, none of us would ever finish anything. You know, and so having a like a, a limitation on your creativity can sometimes actually be, uh, I think, a benefit. So with the adventures going forward, uh, indefinitely at least, we will be having associated Flipmat uh, products on the Pathfinder side for sure. Okay, let's see other questions. Um, let's see here. Uh, uh, how about Drow? Are we planning on doing anything with Drow? Not, not me. Oh, oh, me. Yeah, they. Uh, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> other than the fact that Drow <laughs> an appearance in the Abomination Vault Adventure Path. And kind of, I think, a, a triumphant reappearance in some way, because they they featured heavily in Second Darkness, uh, which was one of our earliest adventure paths back in 2008. And uh, for a variety of different reasons, um, I, I think we were we always were like, oh, that could have been a little bit better. And, and so we've always been kind of holding drow um, until we could really just do something pretty awesome with them. And so uh, we look forward to that happening soon. Let's see here. Um, I'm now scrolling through the questions. It's been a while. People reacting to your F word, Daggle. That's nice. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of more questions. Any chance? Well, this is not an adventure question, but I'll ask it. Uh, any chance of more comics coming? Both the Galarian-based ones or the Worldscape ones with Paizo characters involved, they've all been absolutely awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've put a lot of effort into them. We are in discussions with Dynamite right now about what the next Pathfinder comic will be. Uh, certainly too early to announce anything, but we're at the stage now where we're talking to writers. There's like a very definite plan of something coming uh, in relatively near future. I suspect that you'll know about it within two to three months at this point in time. So there've been a little bit of a, a gap there, uh, but we're looking to get back to uh, the comic books thing fairly soon. Uh, I've seen this question a couple of times. I don't have a great answer for it, but I'm gonna ask lest someone feel like we're being they're being ignored. And that is, um, do we ever plan to get back to the Dark Moon Vale region? Some of our early uh, Pathfinder modules uh, took actually they were called game mastery modules back then they predated even the Pathfinder brand uh, took place in Dark Moon Vale a section of, of uh, Andoran it was also uh, one of the earliest uh, sort of world books that we did was a, a deeper dive on that region um, I don't know if it's the same person asking twice or two different people asking about Dark Moon Vale but there's some Dark Moon Vale love in the chat Dago how does that make you feel um, I, I mean like I got into, I was a fan before I was an employee, before I was a freelancer. And yeah, some of that early stuff I read was the Dark Moon Vale stuff. And I was like, man, this stuff is amazing. But I also know nostalgia is a hell of a drug. And um, <laughs> we can look back at stuff that we made 12 years ago, or we can use our awesome new talent to make cool new things. And that's kind of where I'm leaning on that whole thing. Um, well, you know, one thing that that I think that there's at least an opportunity, 
there's the oh are we going to fully revisit a location right and we only have so many slots oh. and as you say i think we're 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 focused on kind of moving forward more often than than looking back but there's also you know easter eggs and references and things like that and i know that um with so much of uh 2021's early output being focused in otari and otari is itself a, a lumber town you know having references to connections with air uh with andoran's corrupt lumber consortium that kind of thing you know it's still very much a part of our setting you know and so even if we're not going back there immediately that area and those plots you know that stuff is still festering and then we may indeed come back to it sometime in the future just right this second uh we don't have any plans that that i'm aware of anyway to revisit um really andoran or uh the the dark moon veil andoran is not top of the list of places that we want to get back to it got a fair amount of love in first edition so again we're there's there's places that that will always come back you know absalom will always come back to i suspect we'll be back to varicia you know there are those places that are kind of in our hearts you know cheliacs i think we'll get back to at some point but some of those places got a lot of love in the first edition era whereas other places galt you know nex geb rahadum frankly most of the mwangi expanse uh these places off map spots like people were asking about earlier these are things we haven't had an opportunity to get to yet and i think there's a a lot of energy towards some of those areas uh, at least in the foreseeable next year or so uh, in terms of our of our plans extraterrestrial pf2 adventures in the works question mark okay a lot of people are asking like (laughs) what like leaving the planet I think that's what they mean by extraterrestrial. Okay. Yeah, all yeah. Right. Like, well, same as we're going to leave the world, as any other, same as any other continent. If the if it's a, the story demands, then sure. Right, right. Um, I will go so far as to say this: uh, plans are all preliminary. Plans can change, but I have heard the name of at least one of the other planets in uh, Pathfinder solar system getting bandied about in a very non-Starfinder way. So we'll see if that comes to fruition, (laughs) but I wouldn't be tremendously surprised if in some time in 2021, there's at least an adventure somewhere that plugs into some of that material in a pretty exciting way. Is that trying to be subtle enough? Eric, I was trying to be Ron Dagle, was that subtle enough? (laughs) Okay, that was all right. All right, good. Well, you know what? That does bring us to 3.30. Um, I think we are finally uh, out of time, unfortunately. Appreciate everybody who asked a question that we weren't able to get to. Really appreciate everybody's time uh, and your attention here at PaizoCon. Um, this has been a huge experiment for us at Paizo. You know, we were crushed when we had to uh, cancel the in-person uh, PaizoCon. It's a lot of work for us. That's probably why we all look so tired by the end of it. But it's also tremendously reinvigorating. It's great to interact with the audience. It's great to interact with our freelancers and our partners. And um, the the this PaizoCon online has really been as close to that as we can possibly get. And uh, such a short turnaround, you know, the, 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 the marketing team at Paizo, Peyton, Jim, Aaron, have really put a lot of effort into this. Uh, the guys and gals at No Direction uh, have uh, just done a fantastic, fantastic job sort of uh, uh, 
bridging these panels and bringing them to you. They're going to have Adam Daigle uh, for a special one-on-one uh, -on -one interview following this panel. But I just wanted to personally, as Paizo's publisher, I just wanted to thank No Direction for the great partnership that we've had with them for years and years and years. They're a part of the family. And they're a part, you know, all of you guys are, are people when we, we knew we weren't going to be able to meet in person. You know, it was just really sad. And the ability of everybody to come together and throw this thing together on such short notice and it's really virgin territory obviously there's been some tech challenges here and there no one's really done this before at least none of us have done this before on this scale and even the scale itself has really surprised us all so i just wanted from everybody at paizo just to thank all of you for participating in PaizoCon online this year really hope that you have had a fantastic time playing games at four o'clock we've got uh, jason bowman running band of bravos tomorrow night i'll be with the glass cannon uh doing doing a, a session with those guys. That's always a huge blast. And um, it's just, it, it really does feel like PaizoCon is happening, you know, even though it's a different form. So to my fellow panelists, to the folks from No Direction, especially to Peyton, who's been running this thing like a champ the whole time, and to all of you guys, thank you so, so much for participating in PaizoCon online. It's been so successful. I'm sure we'll be forced to do it again sometime. So thank you all very much. Uh, and I think with that, we're going to sign off. And uh, No Direction will be back with Adam Daigle very shortly. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you soon. No Direction Network's PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage was made possible by the KDCon team, consisting of Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param, Ryan Costello, Alexander Agunas, Vanessa Hoskins, Randall Meyer, Dustin Knight, and John Godek. Special thanks to Paizo's social media producer, Peyton Smith, and the entire Paizo staff. For more great Pathfinder, Starfinder, and other RPG news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, and blogs, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. <laughs>